Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name's Rick Zamprin. There's a call to reform politicians' pay and pensions. Zellers is making a comeback, sort of. Who will be the next leader of the federal Green Party? We shine a new light on Hamilton's Sewergate scandal. The province putting pressure on Hamilton's urban boundary plans. When will the COVID-19 pandemic come to an end? And we chat with Hamilton's new deputy police chief. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. This is an important topic that we're going to touch on today because the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is calling for reforms to politician pay and pension reform after we learn that defeated or retiring members of parliament are in line to collect $1.4 million a year in pension payments. Franco Terrazano is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and joins us this morning. Good morning, Franco. Hey, good morning, and thanks for having me on. $1.4 million a year is a lot of money, especially over time. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, So, you know what, I don't think there's going to be taxpayers uh, shedding too many tears this year after you see the the amount in annual pension payments and severance checks that these former MPs are going to be receiving. Um, So the MPs will collect about $1.4 million in total annual pension payments. So that's an annual cost, but but that's going to reach a total of about $42 million by the age of 90 if they continue to collect the pension to the age of 90. Now, we're talking about pensions, which are absolutely mind-boggling, but we also have to remember that former members of Parliament, if they haven't served for six years or they're under the age of 55, then they're eligible for these massive severance checks. So in many cases, there were members of Parliament who served for less than two years, and they will still receive more than $92,000 in a severance payment. So former MPs uh, are going to collect a total of, I think it's just over $3 million in severance checks. So did they really lose in this election? Yeah, no kidding. It's it's really taxpayers that are losing in this election. And uh, that's why we're calling for reform. And, and right now, I think, is a no-brainer time, no better time for politicians to show some leadership and to actually reform their pay and benefits, right? So many taxpayers are struggling. Millions of Canadians struggled through this pandemic where many took uh, pay cuts, lost their jobs, saw their businesses closed down. But also we have to remember the state of the federal government's finances. The federal government is more than a trillion dollars in debt. So certainly this seems like the obvious time to see some form of leadership in Ottawa and, and see our politicians uh, make their pay, their pensions and their benefits affordable and fair for taxpayers. So what kind of reforms is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation calling for? Well, there's three. There's three. Uh, In first, we should be seeing a transition uh, for members of Parliament away from this costly pension plan uh, and more towards and matching RRSP style pension. That is certainly more fair for taxpayers, especially when you uh, remember that the vast majority of Canadians working outside of government don't get a workplace pension at all. The second thing that we're calling for is just an end to these severance payments. I mean, remember, uh, you could be a member of Parliament, work less than two years, and still be pocketing more than $92,000 through their severance. And the people who are getting a severance, it's either because A, you're under the age of 55, or B, because you served for less than six 
years. So so we're calling for an immediate end to these severance checks. And, and third is we got to talk about politician pay here because our members of parliament pocketed not one, but two pay raises while millions of Canadians struggled through the pandemic. So we think that at a bare minimum, our members of parliament should be reversing their pandemic pay hikes. We're chatting with Franco Terrazano, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The other side of the argument is that we need to pay politicians this amount of money to attract the best and brightest minds to Parliament Hill. Your, your thoughts on that thought process? Well, I, I, do, did we really need to, to be giving members of Parliament two pay raises while millions of Canadians struggle through COVID-19? I would say absolutely not. Absolutely not. And and remember, we saw politicians in other countries, also uh, politicians at other levels of government, willing to show solidarity with struggling taxpayers and take a pay cut. Um, let's look at New Zealand, um, comparable country. Well, their prime minister, their ministers, and their top bureaucrats almost immediately during COVID-19 came together and took a 20% pay cut to show solidarity with struggling taxpayers. That's leadership at the top. Um, Also, too, um, when we're talking about the pension reform, we're saying let's make it more fair for taxpayers. Let's make it more affordable for taxpayers, right? Let's uh, transition these members of parliament into a matching RRSP-style pension plan. That's certainly more fair. That's certainly more affordable. Um, Look, with these members of parliament, we see 16 MPs, 16 former MPs, who will receive more than a million dollars in pension income if they continue to collect the pension to age 90. And it'll be Jeff Regan uh, who will receive the largest pension payment to age 90. In total, he would be receiving more than $5 million through annual pension payments, that's in total, if he continues to collect the pension to age 90. So certainly that is unaffordable for taxpayers. That is absolutely scary. Franco, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you to Franco Terrazano, Federal Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, shining a light on the need. I think, I kind of agree with him, that politicians get paid a little too much, especially when it comes to pensions. I mean, a six-figure pension? Wow. Where do I sign up? How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. A Zeller's pop-up shop has opened inside Hudson's Bay at the Burlington Mall, and some shoppers are delighted to see it. We're pleased to be joined by Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author here on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Bruce. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm doing well. This kind of came out of nowhere, or did it? Yeah, I think it kind of came out of nowhere. You know, I hadn't really seen any signs that they were looking to do this. And, uh, you know, the the brand has been retired uh, fully about uh, almost two years because they did have a couple of stores, one near Ottawa and one in Etobicoke near Toronto. Um, but those were sort of clear-out stores, and those closed down in early 2020. Yeah, I had no idea that HBC still even owned the rights to Zellers. Yeah, you know what? They actually uh, sold off the leases to Target way back in 2011, and they kept the trademark name. So quite interesting to see it pop up again. So what happened to Zellers all those years ago? Well, it's a bit of a comedy of errors. I mean, Zellers was once a once-mighty retailer. They were a behemoth. They were just powerful, great retailer, great in the discount segment, you know, started in the Montreal area, worked their way around the world. And, um, you know, just, I think, just a number of ownership changes and uh, eventually, you know, being owned by private equity and, uh, you know, just sort of 
being bought and sold a few times. And, you know, as, as you ha- go through different management regimes and different owners, people start to sort of uh, break pieces off and sell them off and cut staff and slash technology and slash capital spending and slash advertising. And next thing you know, um, and also I can't forget about Walmart coming to town, right? Walmart came to town in 94 and really did discounting better, you know, at a time when Zellers was in decline, right? So it just kept kind of going down after Walmart came along and sadly, you know, saw its end for the most part back in 2011 when it was sold, the leases were sold to Target, and we all know what happened to Target once they came here. Yeah, Target is a whole uh, other discussion that uh, we may have down the road. Uh, what a, what a uh, you know disaster that was. Um, yeah. Why Burlington, though? That that seems to be very interesting. I have no idea why Burlington. I'm surprised because um, you know, I really don't know why. Um, I don't know if they're trying to sort of you know test a somewhat more affluent market, mm-hmm, yeah. um, you know. But I, I don't really see the resonance, but the, the affinity between Zellers and semi-affluent people. Zellers was always a discount brand, and it really targeted folks sort of at the lower income of the spectrum who were counting their pennies. We're chatting with Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. So the question is, could we potentially see more Zellers pop-ups? Well, it's a good question. I mean, you know, personally, I don't think um, this pop-up is going to really do a lot for them. You know, it's got some nice PR play, uh, you know, like we're doing right now and got people to talk about it a bit. But I, I really don't, I can't see this really working and being beneficial to them. I mean, the one thing that I do see is that, you know, HBC has a lot of real estate that isn't productive. And, you know, the question is, could they take one of the floors of, a, of Bay stores that are unproductive and, and you know, use Zellers in there? But I really don't see, you know, Zellers sort of in its current pop-up form being successful because from what I understand, it's, it's you know, a whole bunch of Canadian products, which are great and things like that. But again, Zellers really is, is really more of a, a price point product. So, you know, for me personally, you know, could they use the Zellers brand as almost a dollar store brand? You know, something like a giant tiger in between Walmart and dollar stores? That may be um, in a, on a select basis, but, you know, a lot more research has to be done. What's the likelihood that it could withstand a standalone location and, and could be successful? It could. It could. If they if they opened up a Zellers and uh, they made it more about sort of giant tiger price points, you know, sort of somewhere between Dollarama and Walmart, they might be able to operate a few of them. But it's a very different business model than the rest of the Bay, which is which is focused a lot more on the department store sector, right? So it's not, you know, never say never. It could happen because Zellers, believe it or not, has a fair amount of resonance with, uh, with people, you know, who, uh, who love it. They love the restaurant. You know, they like the brand. Um, overall, Zellers wasn't rated very high, but there is a sense of nostalgia there. So Canadians may give it a go if they did sort of a dollar format. Yeah, that, that nostalgic flavor has certainly applied to TV shows, uh, um, uh, concerts or, or musical bands getting back together. It doesn't really apply that much to retail, though. I mean, we have an affinity for places like Zellers or Kmart or maybe even Byway, but for them to come back, there doesn't seem to be a, a groundswell to to welcome those kind of institutions back. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, when you think about, um, you know, there there is a great sort of uh, trend toward nostalgia, but not so much in the retail side. It's normally done just as more of a public relations stunt versus sort of an ongoing business format. So it doesn't really resonate that well. It could happen with Zellers, though, on Dollar, but again, they'd have to do a ton of research. And even if you did it, you'd be up against someone like Dollarama and Dollar Tree, which are sort of built for managing that, that type of business. Very much so. Bruce, really appreciate the time today. Enjoy the rest of your day. 
Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Bruce Winder, retail expert, speaker, consultant, professor, and entrepreneur, giving us his thoughts on the return, at least uh, the pop-up variety, uh, of Zellers. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. I just asked myself whether this is um, something that I wanted to continue, whether I was willing to continue to put up with uh, the attacks I knew would be coming, um, whether to continue to have to fight and struggle uh, just to fulfill my democratically elected role as leader of this party. And I just I just don't have the, the heart for it. That is now the former leader of the federal Green Party, Annamie Paul, stepping down officially yesterday, listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin here. Chatting with us now about Annamie Paul is Peter Grafe. He's a political science professor at McMaster University, and we say good morning, Peter. Good morning. Well, this move wasn't a surprise. No. no. I, mean, I, I think we saw it for, coming even before the election, given the ongoing uh, fights within the Green Party and their attempts to, uh, of, you know, the outgoing executive of that party to try and undermine the leadership, uh, you know, in every way possible. Enemy Paul was obviously, as he just referenced, put in a less desirable position. In saying that, does her short reign as Green Party leader damage any future that she may have in politics? Well, I mean, it's hard to know if she'd really want a future in politics. I mean, she's someone who, who hadn't had a, a career in politics when she became leader of the Canadian political party, which was maybe, you know, one of her difficulties is that she didn't have that experience of working in a political party and knowing what that involved in terms of, uh, you know, even her idea that she was democratically elected leader and somehow that meant everyone should listen to her. It's not quite how political leadership works. You have to bring the team along. And so I think for those reasons, uh, she had a hard time in her brief stay as a federal political leader, but it's not clear really whether she'd want to go on and do anything else and, and where she might do that. So, yeah, I mean, it, it will be a bit limiting for her, but I, I'm not sure she really wants to come back. She had a number of stinging comments uh, yesterday, uh, saying at one point she knew she was breaking a glass ceiling when she became leader, but she didn't realize that glass ceiling was going to fall on her head. Does that statement scare away any uh, women or minorities from seeking office? I suppose it might, although she also talked about, you know, crawling onto that stage uh, for the leaders' debate, you know, despite all that she'd had to endure uh, precisely to show the the possibility of doing that. I mean, you know, uh, clearly she did face, uh, you know, from her own uh, comments, but also the comments of some close to her, her, uh, uh, you know, incidents of racism and anti-Semitism when she was a leader. Um, but then again, I mean, being the leader of, at the time, the fifth, now the sixth party in Canada is not an easy job. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think one should uh, expect that it would have been a red carpet treatment for her. Uh, it was going to be a difficult task replacing Elizabeth May. Uh, you know, it wasn't made easier by Elizabeth May's um, uh, allies on the National Executive Board, who I think really had uh, wasted the, gov- uh, the, the party's money over the past two years by refusing to lay off their election team from last time and then cut off, turned off the taps as soon as enemy Paul was there. So certainly she faced, you know, a, a lot of difficulties there. But for people to say in a more general sense that, uh, you know, it's, it's evidence that the, the, road, the, the, the road is closed uh, to all but white men in politics, I think, uh, would be a bit limiting. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it was going to be hard at the Green Party. Peter Grafe is our guest, political science professor at McMaster University. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You mentioned former leader Elizabeth May. What's her role going forward with this party? 
Well, I mean, she stepped down as leader, presumably because she didn't want the really uh, difficult and uh, uh, ungratifying work of trying to build a party uh, where you have very few members and very little money and, and still have to run huge national campaigns. And she had carried that for, for a number of years. I think Elizabeth Bay wanted to continue to have all the glory in Parliament, and, and you know that was one of the ways that she undercut Annamie Paul by, uh, you know, not really allowing Annamie Paul to, to define the the party's position in Parliament uh, by continuing to play that role. So I presume, in you know, whoever that party chooses next, Elizabeth May will be a bit of a kingmaker, but again, someone who may be looking out a bit for her own glory and not necessarily for ensuring that that leader succeeds. Uh, I mean, again, certainly, uh, you know, the financial issues that Enemy Paul had with the national executive could have been smoothed over had Elizabeth May wanted to make sure that Enemy Paul was a success. Very much so. So who is the next leader? It's hard to say. I mean, uh, they, they will obviously go back to a, uh, a national race. It's hard to know whether the sort of eco-socialists who came close to winning last time will reorganize and try and amount a candidacy around someone like uh, Mr. Lascaris. Uh, uh, or whether Mike Maurice, the new uh, member from Kitchener, about people don't know very much, but uh, you know, does he manage to create a profile? You know, in many ways, having a, a leader in Parliament would be pretty helpful for the Green Party in terms of ensuring some visibility uh, for what they're doing. Peter, really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us this morning. You're welcome. That is Peter Grave, political science professor at McMaster University, giving us his take on now former Green Party leader Annamie Paul and the future of the political party. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. A video posted online by the Hamilton-based group iElect purportedly shows council voting to keep Sewergate a secret. You remember Sewergate? The 24 billion liters of sewage and untreated wastewater that flowed into Coots Paradise and Shadow Creek between 2014 and 2018. Yeah, that one. Four years worth of that ugly discharge. Well, there's a video posted online that, as I mentioned, purportedly shows council kept this all a secret. Uh, the person who put together that video is joining us now. Community advocate Cameron Kretsch joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Cameron. Good morning. Can you describe the video? I mean, we can't air it for our listeners. There's not much vocals to it. Uh, what's in the video? Yeah, I put together a couple of clips. And just to clarify, iElect reached out and they, they used those clips for a video that they made. Um, but the clips I showed, one was from August of 2018, a couple of months before the last municipal election. And it showed council passing a motion to keep a report called the Chidoke Creek contamination report confidential. So it seemed like kind of a routine thing, but it showed them verbally all voting on it and no one being opposed to keeping the information confidential. And then a second clip showing them doing the same thing when they were given a verbal report at the very last council meeting before the election. So the idea here is that council was very well aware there was contamination in Chido Creek and they chose to keep that information confidential and keep it from the public. And that's what these video clips show. Why did you feel the need to release these video clips? Well, there was news recently that um, two members of city staff, one retired and one was no longer with the city, was the way that it was worded, uh, Dan McKinnon and Andrew Grice, who were at the center of this because, of course, they were both in the water department at the city, um, which has responsibility for what happened with the gate being left open for four years and those 24 billion liters of mixed raw sewage leaking into the local watershed. So once the announcement came that those two were no longer with the city, 
I thought it might be a good time to remind people exactly who was responsible for the cover-up here, right? It was council who knew about it, um, and council who decided not to let that information be known to the public. Um, we know when uh, Dan McKinnon was interviewed uh, at the time, when this became public because of a leak to the spectator in 2019, uh, you know, their kind of standard line was, hey, this is a, a you know, uh, what we do here when there's any risk of litigation, right? So they've, they've taken an approach um, of trying to mitigate risk because they were worried about a fine. And in doing that, um, you know, put people in, in danger. I mean, people were using this waterway and have been using this waterway for a long time. We're using it over that year um, where this was kind of kept secret. Um, and all the while, council just uh, kept a lid on it. So I thought the public should know. So do you, uh, in your best estimation, do you think that Dan McKinnon and Andrew Grice ultimately paid the price here? They, they were held accountable for this uh, occurrence? That's a tough one. We don't have details about why they've left the city. Uh, it's kind of coincidental that uh, the two of them are leaving on the same day and they're connected to this. There's been lots of speculation on Twitter, but frankly, I don't know. Um, my interest here, and it has been this way since it started, this broke, this story broke by The Spectator in uh, November of 2019. Um, I put a petition out December of 2019 that had over 3,200 people saying that they wanted a public inquiry about this. So I think the important thing here is to keep this public narrative going and let people know, um, because it's very, very confusing um, to look at the timeline here and understand what happened. Um, and I think, frankly, it's uh, been orchestrated that way for a reason, to make it difficult to determine who's responsible for here. And if, in fact, what's happened here is that Dan um, and Andrew have um, been put forward as scapegoats for this, I think the public has to recognize that there's a lot of blame to go around and that the last term of council is where this started. In saying that, and our guest this morning is Cameron Kretsch, community advocate here on uh, Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Should others at City Hall be held accountable? I mean, I think that council ultimately, that's where, the, that's where the buck stops, right? That's the folks who make the decisions about what to do. There's a reason why these things were brought to council's attention. Ultimately, of course, the city manager is the person who's responsible for staff at City Hall. And that's the person ultimately council employs, right? Ultimately, council's in charge of the city manager. And if the city manager isn't doing a good job, they have ways to deal with the city manager. And ultimately, that's the person and staff who should be accountable for these kinds of things. But city council and councillors on council, those folks, we elect them, right? Um, these are the people we put in these seats to represent us. And ultimately, they're responsible. They're the ones who have had a very um, secrecy-based uh, decision-making process. We've seen many, many issues um, over the years of them keeping things to themselves. Um, in fact, at this time, what we're talking about in 2018, um, they didn't even have recorded votes or, or transparency around electronic recorded votes and things like that. So um, it was a very laissez-faire uh, type of meeting structure um, where it was probably easier to miss things than not. We've got about a minute here on uh, Good Morning Hamilton, at least in this segment. Uh, Cameron, you're obviously a very passionate uh, person in terms of what's happening in our city. Do you have plans to run for council at any point? I'm certainly giving it some thought, um, but haven't confirmed anything yet. Uh, it's still a ways away until next year in October. Cameron, appreciate the time. Thanks for shining a light on this uh, important topic. Thanks so much. Yeah, you too. Cameron Kretsch, Community Advocate, uh, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, there are instances, I should I should say, there are instances where City Council goes into what they call in-camera to discuss sensitive or legal items. Um, whether there was a gray line here or a shaded line here, uh, you know, could be debated. We do know that the word cover-up has been used in this instance many times. 
um, I think we're all confident in saying council wasn't as clear and wasn't as transparent in this uh, scandal. And I think they should have done a better job of doing so. Obviously, um, a couple of people, maybe, in McKinnon and Grice have paid the price for that scenario. But, uh, hey, the city has still a lot of work to do in terms of cleaning up the area, dredging, millions of dollars being spent. Um, this story obviously isn't uh, isn't going away. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Hamilton's urban sprawl issue certainly uh, a hot topic in this city. Councillor John Paul Danko tweeted Sunday afternoon, quote, The Ontario PC Party spent three years setting growth regulations that led to boundary expansions. After 90.4% of 18,387 Hamilton residents said no... The provincial government is now threatening Hamilton to force an expansion and destroy farmland. This is undemocratic and unacceptable. Here to chat about that tweet is the man himself, John Paul Danko, Ward 8 Councillor for the City of Hamilton. Good morning, JP. How are you? Good morning, Rick. So what's what's going on here? Well, the, the City of Hamilton has the authority to set our growth plans for the next 30 years. And under the, the previous uh, provincial government, um, they had put in some fairly progressive uh, growth development strategies to try to encourage intensification, uh, to be more responsible about climate change and uh, environmental issues, stormwater runoff, that kind of thing and try to focus growth in the urban centers and stop what has been uh, historically uh, a pattern of sprawl growth. And I I think we're we're all familiar of what that sprawl growth looks like. It's basically very large, very expensive single-family homes that are built on a a former cornfield. And that's that's what we're, you know, trying to stop in the city of Hamilton. We're trying to focus that growth in in ways that are more affordable for taxpayers, for the city, and to uh, build up and not out. So we've been working on those plans for the last couple of years. We have the authority um, as a municipality to set our own growth plans. But once the, uh, the, the Doug Ford PC government uh, took over from the former government, they basically changed all the rules. And if you look at the changes that they put in place, it basically seems like they've designed the rules of the game to force municipalities to expand their urban boundaries into that sprawl type of uh, development that we're, we're trying to stop. So um, recently, the city put out a survey to all residents of the city, Hamilton, and we got uh, 18,387 responses back. And that is a massive, massive level of engagement for, uh, for a city to get from the residents. Um, you know, if we put out a survey, normally we get a couple hundred responses. We're, we're really lucky if we get over 1,000. So to get over 18,000 responses is just a huge level of engagement. And it shows that city residents are um, really um, interested in this topic, and they're also really, really knowledgeable about the issues and what's going on. Um, and I think the most surprising thing there was that 90, 90.4% of the respondents said no to an urban boundary expansion. They said, we don't want you to build out into those uh, agricultural areas. We want you to preserve that prime agricultural land and build up and not out. In your tweet, you shared a letter to the city from a representative in the Department of Municipal Affairs and Housing, which says, in part, 
It appears the no-boundary expansion scenario poses a risk that the city would not conform with provincial requirements, and it looks forward to receiving the city's draft official plan by July 2022. How do you anticipate City Council is going to respond to this letter? Well, I think, again, I am responsible to the residents of Ward 8 and the residents of Hamilton. I'm not responsible to Doug Ford and the Ontario PC party um, in Queen's Park. So my primary interest is, is what is in the best interest for the city of Hamilton. And again, like I said, the, the provincial government has basically stacked the deck against municipalities to force um, urban boundary expansions. Um, so we're the ones that are you know, basically left holding the bag. So they're like, you have the, uh, the authority to make the final decision, but we're going to make sure that all the rules are in place to make sure that you get the decision that we want. So you know, as a municipal councillor, then I end up, you know, with all the responsibility for that decision and uh, the provincial governments, you know, gets to uh, get out of it uh, scot-free as if they're not responsible. And, and I'm, I'm really not interested in, in doing that. My, my interest, again, is, is in what is the best interest for Hamilton. And I think what is really, um, I think, concerning to the provincial government and why they've taken such a, a heavy-handed approach with Hamilton basically threatening us to do what we told you to do or else um, is because Hamilton is about six months to a year ahead of all uh, most of the other municipalities in Ontario, except for Ottawa. Ottawa is a little bit ahead of us, but we're um, leading all, most of the GTA municipalities. So whatever decision that we make in Hamilton, if we listen to the residents of Hamilton and say, no, we're going to take a firm line on the urban boundary, we're not going to expand, I think it threatens to really... Um, derail all of their planning that they've put in place over the last three years, especially for areas in the GTA, for Vaughan, Mississauga, um, and places like that, which they are seem very concerned about. Are other communities, and those, some of those that you just referenced, including many others around the Golden Horseshoe, are, are, is everyone on the same kind of path in terms of building up as opposed to out? I think it's it's kind of a new way of looking at growth, uh, especially in North America, where municipalities and cities in particular have realized that building sprawl development on the outskirts of town, building million and a half dollar, three thousand square foot single family homes on, on on farms on former farmland, is not a sustainable uh, growth plan. Um, it costs municipalities just a tremendous amount of money in the long term because we end up having to pay for the second cycle replacement of all the infrastructure that is needed to, to service those areas. It's been kind of described as a giant Ponzi scheme where you put in place this, uh, this pattern of growth and you have to continue to expand and expand and expand in order to finance the previous growth. And I think in Hamilton, we want to take a stand and stop that cycle. JP Denko, appreciate the time today. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That is Ward 8 Councillor for the City of Hamilton, John Paul Danko, uh, reflecting on the city's recent survey about the urban boundary uh, scenario. 90.4% of Hamilton residents, uh, 18,000 residents, um, contributing to this uh, survey say, no, uh, they don't want the city to spread outwards, uh, find some unique and um, effective ways of building up. That doesn't necessarily mean skyscrapers. But, uh, you know, row houses, maybe some three, four, five-story uh, homes and affordable units. And that's the key as well. We, got, we have to make these units affordable so more 
uh, millennials, Gen Zs, uh, seniors, uh, people who are struggling financially and uh, can't afford these, you know, million-dollar homes in the outskirts of town, which is what would be the case if we were to build out. Uh, they can uh, stay and uh, enjoy the inner parts of the city. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The latest COVID-19 modeling projections are going to be released for Ontario today, and it comes just days after the proof of vaccination program kicked in. Now, we're not expecting to hear a lot of doom and gloom today. However, Ontarians will likely be reminded to get vaccinated if they haven't already done so and keep up with public health measures like wearing a mask, physically distancing. Global's Tina Trigiani tells us more. For most of this past summer, the Chief Medical Officer of Health warned of a surge in cases for September, with some kids returning to in-person learning and their parents heading back to their workplaces. That hasn't come to fruition. In fact, what's been happening has been in line with the best-case scenario. Case counts have remained under 1,000. The graph of Ontario's seven-day average shows a plateau since the beginning of this month, and hospitalizations and ICU admissions are stable. The worst-case scenario, though, was worrisome. Roughly 4,000 daily cases by now, but we're nowhere close to that. Public health measures getting some of the credit as well as vaccination uptake. Roughly 81% of eligible Ontarians are fully immunized. Tina Trajani, Global News. The question, however, everyone is uh, still asking themselves, uh, well, I mean, there's there's a million questions these days, but when will the COVID-19 pandemic come to an end? Thomas Tenkate is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Thomas. Yeah, good morning. Thanks thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on today. Uh, Before we think about the when, maybe we should start with the how or what. What has to happen for the pandemic to be declared over? Well, I I think uh, in some ways the the question of when it's over or not over is sort of more of a murky area. Uh, My sense is that, you know, we will come to a point where the, the numbers of cases will be sort of manageable and then we'll move from you know, what they call the pandemic phase into the endemic phase, what is the phase where we just so learn to live with those numbers of cases. And so what that actual number is, uh, is sort of hard to tell. My, my sense is it's probably, uh, you know, a few hundred of cases per day, uh, because that's really uh, based on capacity of, of the uh, healthcare system to, to cope and to, to be able to still do its normal function while or managing the number of cases that we have. So so I think that's probably, you know, the the the, the number of cases that we're talking about for for them to sort of say, well, you know, the, the bulk of the pandemic's behind us and we're sort of moving into sort of uh, <clears throat> just management of, of of the of it as as an as an endemic uh, endemic illness. Now, because this is a global health crisis, it's not just here in Canada. Do you think a country will be able to declare the pandemic over, or does that have to come from the WHO? Hmm. Yeah, so so definitely because it's a pandemic, the like an official declaration of of the pandemic being over will come from the WHO. But but I think you know individual countries will will sort of feel that they've you know. Uh, sort of moved out of the pandemic phase into this endemic phase uh, at different stages, and uh, but but definitely uh, you know as a as like a, from a you know initially when when this started you know the, the the WHO was a little bit sort of slow on the uptake in regard to uh, you know officially recognising it as a uh, public health emergency, and so so I think that they'll also be cautious in in uh, and slow in in uh, calling the emergency over. 
Thomas Tenkate is our guest, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Now on to the when, maybe the most important question in all this. Some scientists are pointing to next spring as a possible end to the pandemic. Uh, that might be a little early or who knows, might be a little late. I, I'm, I'm certainly not a scientist. What is your best guess as to when this is going to happen? Yeah, well, well, definitely looking at the numbers uh, and as your uh, introduction uh, identified, we, we have seen for the last few weeks in Ontario that the uh, numbers have been reasonably flat, so they've plateaued, uh, and now we're seeing the numbers uh, sort of dropping off a little bit. And so, pre, you know, in the previous sort of uh, peaks that we've had, they were relatively sharp peaks where we had a you know a very rapid increase and then a peak and then a rapid decrease. And, and now in this fourth wave, we've seen a, a plateau and now we're seeing a slow, the start of a slow decrease. And so, so my sense is that, you know, the, the current, with the current uh, uh, measures in place and, and if we also have the, uh, the vaccinations for uh, 5 to 11-year-olds uh, roll in <clears throat> and then also uh, some boosters for people who really need it, you know, not, not for everyone, but for, for people who need it, uh, the, the most high-risk people, then that combination of measures, I think, will, will keep that, uh, the uh, numbers of cases on a, on a decrease. And so, so, you know, my sense is, that, you know, even though you're saying, you know, you're saying maybe spring, I, I would like to think it might be a little bit earlier than that. Hmm. Wow. Well, we can only hope. Thomas, really appreciate the time today. Enjoy the rest of your day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much. Thanks Thank for you. having me. Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Could the pandemic be over in a matter of months? Potentially. One thing to keep in mind, though, if there is a new variant of concern, a Delta 2.0, uh, all bets are off, right? That could be the wild card. But he brings up some good points, and who knows? Maybe it's an early Christmas gift. I might be looking through rose-colored glasses, but wouldn't that be... The best gift of all. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Hamilton Police have named their new Deputy Police Chief. Services Board Chair and Mayor Fred Eisenberger making that announcement yesterday that Paul Hamilton will take on the post. He fills the vacancy left when Chief Frank Bergen was promoted into the service's top spot earlier on this year. Uh, Hamilton is a 31-year member of the force and was previously acting deputy chief of support services and before that worked as superintendent in the investigative services division. And we welcome new deputy chief of Hamilton Police, Paul Hamilton, to Good Morning Hamilton. Paul, good morning. Good morning. How are you today? Not too bad. Congrats. How does it feel? Uh, uh, It feels great. I don't think, honestly, it's really sunk in yet, but uh, um, uh, it feels uh, great to be honored yesterday and have my uh, colleagues come out to recognize me. So, uh, I'm off to a good start. So how did this come about? As far as becoming deputy? Yeah, I mean, is this a goal that you've had for a while? Um, <laughs> be honest with you, I've uh, uh, not something I've uh, uh, thought about throughout my career. I've had a lot of people come up to me in the last uh, uh, few days and uh, uh, acknowledge that uh, they remember when I was promoted first to sergeant and uh, how uh, satisfied I was uh, at that rank and that I thought that would be uh, uh, the last promotion for me. Uh, but every time I, uh, I uh, was promoted, I, I seen the opportunity to uh, um, better the service, uh, things we can do better in the community, and that always, uh, always uh, drove me to, uh, to 
to go higher in the organization. Does this uh, promotion come with a certain level of expectations or, or even maybe some pressure? Oh, absolutely. There's expectations uh, both internally uh, with our members and, uh, of course, uh, externally with the community. Um, uh, definitely comes with uh, those expectations. Uh, being a police officer is certainly a rewarding career. can be a challenging one uh, as well. Why did, you want, why did you want to become a cop? Um, I, I was always uh, uh, I was drawn to uh, policing. I was always involved in team sports uh, uh, growing up as a kid, and uh, I always uh, thrived in that team environment. And uh, policing is very much a, a team uh, team environment. Uh, we uh, have to rely on one another each day to uh, deliver public safety, and that's really what uh, drew me to policing. Paul Hamilton is our guest. He's uh, the city of Hamilton's new deputy police chief, and you're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What are the duties of the deputy chief? What does your day-to-day look like? Uh, day-to-day, I'm uh, responsible for uh, su- support services, which uh, looks after our uh, our marine unit, our tactical unit, uh, canine mounted community mobilization, uh, professional development division uh, training. Um, so um, it's got various duties. It uh, it uh, depends on the day, and there's always emerging issues to deal with uh, um, that are happening within the community. Um, and uh, looking uh, also at those uh, long-term uh, goals uh, we have, uh, uh, building trust, engaging with the community, and meeting uh, the needs of the community. Do you also coordinate with other police services across the province to find out what they're doing, maybe learn best practices, or share what's working well here? Absolutely. That's uh, that's an ongoing process uh, um, we do every day with the relationship we've built uh, throughout our career or through the uh, Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police where we share information. Uh, one of the recent ones we've uh, just recently uh, engaged in was a, a study on uh, how other police services are engaging with their community uh, so that we can uh, find a way to uh, build a uh, model that suits our community's needs. Paul Hamilton is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton here on 900 CHML. Paul is the new Deputy Chief of Hamilton Police. Uh, You mentioned that you didn't expect to get promoted past the rank of sergeant. There is one more step in the ladder, and that is Chief of Police. Could that one day become a reality? Is that something that you would like to have happen if it does come about? Uh, Absolutely. That's uh, always a long-term goal. Um, Right now, I'm... uh, my commitment is to supporting uh, Chief Bergen and his uh, his five-year vision for the organization and supporting uh, Deputy Chief Diodotti and our CAO Felice uh, on meeting their goals in their areas. So, uh, um, as I said, uh, never say never. It's not a uh, it's not something I took on this role to become, but uh, um, it is something that I would definitely uh, uh, look look to in the future. What are the uh, top issues that you want to tackle as Deputy Chief? What needs to happen in this city to, to make it a safer city? Well, I think one of the biggest things and what I talked about yesterday was uh, public trust. Um, trust in this community is, uh, has been fractured uh, through uh, historical incidents or uh, incidents that happened a couple years ago in the, with the Pride community. And there are certain uh, communities that uh, distrust the police for historical reasons. Um, we got to work on that trust. Um, trust is imperative to uh, what we do in policing. Um, people that uh, trust their police are more likely to co-police their own communities, act as witnesses, report crime. These are keys to uh, our success. 
and uh, and keeping the public safe. So uh, we really have to build those relationships. Uh, we can't do it alone. Uh, we need uh, a good partnership with this community. So how do you rebuild that trust? What are some of the steps that are upcoming for you, for the police service? Uh, one of the things, uh, as I said, we've uh, conducted that study on the uh, community consultation, so that's something we're looking to uh, roll out uh, later this year or early next year is some community consultation tables where we're going to bring in uh, people from the community to uh, um, hear their perspective um, and uh, hear how we can do our job better. Um, we, we have to acknowledge that we don't always get it right and we don't have all the answers and uh, just as uh, the term community policing implies, it has to involve the community. So uh, that's one of the steps uh, we're going to be taking. And another one is uh, hate crime uh, community review uh, that I'm heading. And uh, what that is going to do is uh, we've oftentimes heard from the community that uh, um, hate we're not doing a very good job with uh, reporting of hate crime and our investigation of hate crime. So again, we want to bring the community in to uh, consult with us, uh, help us uh, break down barriers for reporting, uh, improve uh, our investigations with the ultimate goal of improving outcomes for victims. And hopefully throughout this process, uh, we can uh, we can work on building that trusted relationship. Sounds like a great plan. Paul, uh, congratulations once again on becoming Hamilton Police Deputy Chief, and thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me. Have That's Paul. Day. You too, Paul Hamilton, Deputy Chief, Hamilton Police Service, is joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. And yeah, that rebuilding of the trust is, you know, that's a tough nut to crack because there's years of mistrust or distrust. Uh, You know, occurrences have happened. Uh, Paul mentioned the Pride Festival and what happened a couple of years ago. And, and, and that bridge takes time to rebuild. It's not going to be overnight, not going to be in a, in a year. This is an ongoing development. Hey, we got a lead-by-example process, and uh, we'll get there. You know, fingers crossed that Hamilton police get there. And uh, number one goal, keep this community safe and, yeah, continue to rebuild uh, that trust. So good luck to Paul and uh, the crew at Hamilton Police. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Zamperin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.